I doubt I'd be here if it weren't for social media, to be honest with you. The thing to understand about a lot of these tweets, the strategy behind it, is that the controversy that follows, and often it's a controversy that's about him saying things that aren't true, it's a controversy that always posits him as the guy fighting for the little guy against the elite. He tries to talk about issues that are very complex. He uses it to mostly attack people, insult, criticize people. The most dangerous thing he does is conduct diplomacy on Twitter. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Talking Trump means, of course, talking politics. And news cycle poisoning means we all need to discharge the toxicity by trying to get a picture of politics in Trump's America. But there's more to the story of our time than politics, whatever that is. And today we're talking about tech. Specifically, how social media made Trump addled our language and cognition, and landed us in this hellscape. Peter Singer, together with Emerson Brooking, is the author of Like War, a book out this month that lays out the politics, battlegrounds, and stratospherically high stakes of social media. For the book, Peter interviewed subjects as weird and diverse as reality show heel Spencer Pratt to national security heel Mike Flynn. The book is an amazing achievement, and I'm happy to have Peter here We'll be back with Peter Singer in just a minute. But first, the most bullied person in the whole world. And now, an excerpt from Melania Trump's Bullying Diary. August 17th, Dear Bullying Diary. Today was a very hard day of being bullied. On my way to the Rose Garden for an important press conference... Stephen Miller came up to me and said, Melania, what is that on your blouse? He then pointed to an area on my shirt. When I looked down to see where he pointing, he raised his finger, touched my nose, and make a booping noise. He laughed, and I felt sad. August 28th. Dear Bullying Diary. Today, in a big group meeting, I saw Stephen Miller pull out a notebook sheet of paper and write the question, does Melania Trump have stinky cooties? Then he made three boxes below it, one that said yes, one that said no, and one that said maybe. He hovered his pen over the maybe box, but then moved it and made a big dark X in the yes box. This made me very sad. October 3rd Dear Bullying Diary I am a stinky cootie-having human being, a total loser who does not know what to say or do. Ha ha ha, I'm an idiot. October 3rd Addendum I speculate that Stephen Miller has stolen my bullying diary and has written the excerpt above. What am I to do about being so bullied? Hashtag be best. Welcome to Trumpcast, Peter. Thanks for having me on. So you've written this book, Like War. It's one word with a capital W in between, and it is coming out this month. Tell us about Like War. So Like War is a book that reflects over five years of research, basically exploring 
how social media has reshaped the news, politics, and war, but in turn, how news, politics, and war has changed the internet for the rest of us. The title of it is a bit of a play on words, like so much today. If cyber war is the hacking of the networks, like war is the hacking of the people on the networks through a mix of likes and lies and the system's own algorithms. It's also a bit of a play on the idea of what we've seen that relates to the story of Donald Trump, for example, this um, podcast topic, how military units are using information warfare techniques to influence elections, but in turn, you have teenagers and selfies and trolls and the like affecting the outcome of not just elections, but actual battles. Yeah. So this is, I mean, this is such a fascinating topic. And the Oxford organization that that researches Infowar has said, yes, that there's some form of information warfare that hacks humans, that hacks our hearts and minds. And it seems like that's something that you have now spent a long time in the weeds of. Because as you say, this is Trumpcast. I know your book ranges widely, but I'd like to focus on one broad but important thing. How has Trump's social media presence transformed the world as we've come to know it? So literally, not just figuratively, to, to echo some of the fun things he said, uh, literally the yeah. opening scene of the book is yeah. Donald Trump's very first tweet. Uh, and we describe it as uh, the opening shot of a war that seemingly had nothing to do with war. And of course, it was a war that would later play out in terms of information warfare, but a war for hearts and minds in the elections, a war for the internet. And yet, you know, it's it's arguably one of the most important communications uh, messages and certainly in recent American political history. And yet it had, again, nothing to do with politics. It was on May 4th, 2009. And it's, quote, be sure to tune in and watch Donald Trump on late night with David Letterman as he presents the top 10 list tonight. And it's just this funny, you know, you go back to this moment in time and both social media is at a crossroads. Twitter hasn't yet made it. It still has a relatively small user count. But then a couple of weeks later, uh, it would be driven to revolutionary success, but actually by a different at the time, far more well-known celebrity is it's the death of Michael Jackson that takes Twitter Mm. uh, over the top. His passing basically convulses the internet in grief and, you know, pop's music, pop music's loss proves to be Twitter's gain. The the traffic surges, it gets a hundred thousand tweets per hour, but more importantly, people start using social media for something new. They begin to experience an event, experience the news together online. But then you get the twin story of how Donald Trump is also at a crossroads. He's coming out of his fourth bankruptcy. Trump Entertainment Resorts uh, has just collapsed over um, $1.2 billion in debt. He's been banished from the executive board. He's rebranded himself as a reality television host, but the shine is starting to wear off. You know, he likes to talk about how The Apprentice was a top 10 show. But at that point in time, it actually sunk to the 75th most uh, watched show. Uh, it had been put on hiatus. The celebrity spinoff that that he's trying to promote is still on the air, but its ratings are also plummeting. And so they turned to social media to announce an appearance on TV 
to try mm. and then steer other people to watch on TV. Think about how the story is flipped. And yet what's uh, you know so fascinating about it is not only does it not work, the Celebrity Apprentice season finale that year, uh, just a, a few days after his first tweet, um, you know, more Americans elect to watch uh, Desperate Housewives and Cold Case instead. But mm. um, uh, also very few people reply to it. Um, you know, one of the messages back is, okay. Another one is follow me, <laughs> Donald Trump. I think like a, a, a champ, but of course this moment is an important, um, you know, again, part of, you know, America's political history because his jumping online leads to the story of his rise. And we, in the book track, you know, his early tweets, how they shift, how the tone shifts, the target shift, um, he begins to become addicted like the rest of us. The the networks are literally designed to make you become addictive. He begins to hone some of the uh, strategies that he'll later propel him into um, the presidency. Uh, he begins, for example, flame wars with fellow celebrities, which, you know, again, if you go hmm. back in time, it's um, was unseemly for a supposed businessman to be getting in arguments in front of the world like a shouty teenager, but it gives him what he craves, it gives him what he needs, attention, and he understands that in this new space, and according to the new rules of the game, attention as uh, can, be, can be power, um, not just power online, but it can translate into power offline. And then of course, he begins to um, turn his eye to politics. Uh, he changes his tone on Barack Obama, who he had previously, uh, described as someone that he was, um, supportive of, thought he was doing really well to, he announced, he, he basically surfaces an old internet conspiracy theory. See how all this circles together. Um, he posts, mm -hmm. you know, let's quote, let's take a closer look at that birth certificate and mm -hmm. the online reaction spikes and together mm -hmm. Trump and Twitter begin to steer politics into uncharted territory. And, you know, I, it's just a fascinating story. And then of course you move forward, uh, you know, about a thousand days and um, social media has changed. Uh, mm -hmm. We're not just using it, but importantly, journalists are using it. 97% of journalists are on Twitter and they're using it for their ideas of what to cover, um, who mm -hmm. do a book on their shows, uh, what's trending then leads the headlines. And of course, um, Trump's uh, account, which had previously been posting things like, quote, everyone is raving about the Trump home mattress. Um, it's now posts, uh, quote, I'm honored to serve you, the great American people, as your 45th president of the United States. And we know that he personally mm. posted it because honored is misspelled. <laughs> <laughs> well, that okay, that's my question about back to the first tweet and the first flame wars. So the the May 4th, uh, 2009, and, you know, in some ways with this kind of archaeology, we don't you don't want to like press too hard on what might have been just the personal branding that people imagined the sort of second wave of Twitter was for. Maybe the first wave at South by Southwest, people were using it to make a uh, bar plans and, and you know, like tag particular friends of theirs. But by 2009, 
even journalists are increasingly being told, like, you've got to get on Twitter and flog your pieces. When he posts this, he says, be sure to tune in and watch. And he, he names himself in the third person as he's inclined to do Donald Trump on Late Night with David Letterman. Now, there were like there were sort of style rules also in this time because you were doing so much self-promotion with a bullhorn, but you were supposed to be a little bit circumspect about it. You know, so like it might interest you or David. I was thrilled to be on David Letterman or, you know, I'm, I, you know, David Letterman, as usual, you know, it, like give the graciously um, give attention to other people. And he certainly doesn't do that. And also, he's chosen this handle, real Donald Trump. So he that has the accept no substitutes factor to it, you know, that there might be other people posing as him, but he's the real thing. Um, that has a, a a a nice and and irritating arrogance to it. Um, and but uh, last question, I mean, last sort of observation. Tell me what you think of this. It looks a little like it's written by possibly by a by a PR adjunct um, because I don't think I'm not sure that he was using. Well, I don't know. What do you think? So you covered uh, so much there. And so I'm going to try and tick through them one by one. Um, okay. And if, if, if you'll permit me, I'm going to jump beyond just uh, the story of Donald Trump, um, both Please. because I think it's instructive. And, and frankly, the book also goes beyond it. And one of the changes that's um, happened uh, that's that's wrapped up within the story of um, what's played out in American politics, but really global politics writ large, is that you have these platforms that were built for other purposes. Um, they were not built with politics or war in mind. Uh, so, you know, just a couple years before um, the story of Trump's first tweet, uh, Twitter is created um, essentially to allow people to uh, instant message in terms of both businesses and for San Francisco uh, rave dance parties. Um, mm -hmm. the, the title itself of the company is taken from uh, a word that it's deliberately chosen for a word that means um, short bursts of inconsequential information. Mm -hmm. now, again, you know, mm -hmm. we go from its short bursts of inconsequential to it has world changing uh, impact. You go a yeah. little bit uh, a couple years earlier, you have Mark Zuckerberg in his dorm room who's basically creating, um, he writes software to uh, allow um, essentially his fellow Harvard uh, schoolmates to rate who's hot or not. That's yeah. the origin of what's originally Face Mash and then the Facebook. And then, of course, again, it becomes, uh, you know, by all different measures, it's the you can look at it as the the largest, you know, in, in quotation marks, nation in the world. For many nations, uh, it literally is the Internet. If you're talking about Myanmar or Philippines, Mm -hmm. Um, it's thus been woven into, um, how mass killings have been sparked to, you know, if we want to circle back to the story of Trump, uh, Twitter is where Trump essentially drives the media conversation and thus the political mm -hmm. conversation. Facebook mm -hmm. though, is where his organization wins the election. And there's yeah. a lot of really interesting insights we were able to uh, uncover about how the um, campaign approached it and wonderful parallels with how the campaign did it. Within the book, we um, do a comparison between how BuzzFeed uh, changed the media business 
and how ISIS used a similar model to change the um, essentially the terrorism game. And, you know, one of the lessons of, of like war is that there are these new set of rules that uh, how to put this, that these new set of rules that drive uh, the way you operate on the Internet and use it to achieve your real world goals. And it mm-hmm. doesn't matter the type of group. You get these strange um, outcomes where groups with wildly different belief systems and goals are using the very same tactics because they are the winning tactics. So, for example, you know, I mentioned um, whether it's BuzzFeed or the Trump campaign. Another example is the comparison between um, uh, Donald Trump as an individual Taylor Swift and a fellow named Junaid Hussein, who was ISIS's top recruiter, they all mm. were using very similar strategies of um, uh, kind of winning in terms of it's, it's this idea of planned authenticity. But so that what I wanted to get at is, you know, first, there's mm. this different origin point that you were touching on. And then, of course, they become the nervous system of the modern world. Um, these platforms yeah. become the place where we not only post our vacation videos, they're also where, you know, journalists decide what to cover, politicians test out their ideas, et cetera. Okay. So then the second thing you hit was um, the early days, uh, you know, it's it, his um, handle is at real Donald Trump because early mm-hmm. on you had um, most uh, celebrities weren't yet on it. And, and celebra- celebrities means not only, you know, media figures, but politicians, business leaders and the like. And so you had this phenomenon of squatting. It also pointed to how hmm. the companies had not yet um, uh, figured out how to police their own networks. They had a, mm-hmm. a hands off approach. So if someone else puts down your name, well, they got there first. Uh, we don't mm-hmm. have the verification and the like. And, and again, this this illustrates some issues that would later play out because these companies are running these digital kingdoms, but they're trying to steer clear of politics, even though they become the shaping space of politics. And to kind of circle back to um, today, uh, you get these um, outcomes where belatedly the tech companies uh, face facts. They face up to the, the reality that they're uh, platforms have been hijacked for various purposes, and after the fact, they implement reforms that, if they had been in there earlier, American and world politics would be totally different. If you think about, for example, the activities that um, Facebook uh, and Twitter put into place in the summer of 2018 to screen out um, Russian bot accounts, uh, fake accounts, and the like. If those had been in place earlier, uh, we're in a very different world. Um, so that's that's the second uh, thing that's kind of illustrated by your noting, you know, using the handle at real Donald Trump. The third, yeah, is you hit it exactly right. Um, by, you know, I went back and read all the old Donald Trump tweets, so you didn't have to. <laughs> um, Thank you. And and you see this change over time. So early on. When he first jumps online, it's pretty clear that it's not him personally. And he's actually talked about this. It's not just the evidence of it being written in the third person, but he would talk about how, if I remember the quote exactly, it was like, there were the young ladies in the office who would, you know, Mm -hmm. type it out, bada bing, bada bing for him. And it basically Hmm. in the first year of life at real Donald Trump was pretty obviously pinned mostly by his staff. And it was mostly Mm -hmm. in the third person. 
And the feed was a mix of two things. It was marketing pitches for Trump branded products, mm-hmm. vitamins, keychains, and pretty uninspired, inspiring quotes. Don't be afraid of being unique. You know, it's it's things like yeah. that. However, yep. in 2011, something changes. Yeah. The volume of his Twitter messages quintuple. And then they quintuple again. So the other thing happening around 2010 and 2011 is Twitter gets a noble sense of purpose because it starts to take responsibility for the Arab Spring, which is, uh, you know, extraordinary, but energizes the brass at Twitter. I wonder if Trump got a whiff of that. I know that Ashton Kutcher and Ray Chambers, I think, had some idea that if he raced to a million followers, somehow they could cure malaria very Silicon Valley thinking that then they would distribute malaria nets and and somehow the the idea of the numbers of followers could translate into either a, a social movement, a political movement or, you know, or some kind of philanthropy. And I think Twitter sort of gets its kind of sacred rage at that point that it, and, and sense of its consequence. What do you think? Essentially, um, the uh, activists didn't own the internet. They'd just gotten there first. And mm. we frame this again as a, as a like war because a war always involves two sides. There's always learning back and forth. So if you're mm-hmm. looking at what plays out with the Arab Spring, yes, it's key for uh, the toppling of the Mubarak regime um, in Egypt, but then the technology is utilized to uh, help identify who activists are, help arrest them. Um, And you get an outcome with a regime that's actually uh, maybe more authoritarian. You see suppression in um, Libya and Syria that then generates a civil war. Importantly to the story of uh, Donald J. Trump, this is also the period where young activists in Russia organize online against what has become clear that uh, Putin's not going to leave office, that he is Mm. going to be a leader for life. And this is the period of time of arguably the greatest threat to Putin's rules. There's a series of public protests and it's organized online and it catches the regime off guards and Mm. uh, it scares them. And there's two important things that happen. The first is that they believe that this is a series of protests pushed by the West designed to topple their government, that basically the Americans are behind this all. And so it frames everything that Russia does moving forward. In their mind, it's not an information attack on the rest of the world, in America Mm -hmm. in particular. It's a defensive action. The second thing that and of course, that moves forward to activities taken in recent elections all the way to the upcoming fall election in 2018. The second thing that happens is part of the domestic pushback in Russia is a because the the Putin regime can't it's just not doing well against this online organizing a group of Putin supporters who are youth. Uh, There's a youth group called Nashi. Basically, they organize themselves to push back and they create false accounts, sock puppet accounts, and they argue back and post false stories and the like about the other their their protesters. And it's the origin of what would later become 
the effort in terms of what's known as the Internet Research Agency and the like. Basically, the yeah, this is this was the subject of the indictments right in February, the the Mueller indictments that really spelled out what the Mueller charge is, which is conspiracy to defraud the United States right in the hands of this Internet Research Agency. Exactly. That is the group that um, it, it comes out of this youth group originally, and then it's essentially contracted by the Putin regime to turn it into an organization. Um, and that's where you get things like the Internet Research Agency that's later deployed out. But I wanted to hit one thing. So you, you circle back to, you know, you have this sort of political optimism, but all the figures are figuring out um, essentially how to how to turn it back, how to tool it into a weapon in their own hands. This, just as you know, sort of crosses with this moment where Trump is personally discovering Twitter, but his eye is also starting to turn to something else. So if you mm-hmm. look at it in 2011, as I mentioned, the volume of his messages is quintupling. The next year it quintuples again. The verbiage of it shifts from being third person to first person. You can mm. also begin to figure out when it is being done by someone else who's basically taking what he says and tapping it out. And that's during business hours to, you know, his famous late night tweets and the like. Yeah. The other important thing is that the tone and the language shifts. This at real Donald Trump is real and it's real combative. It picks online fights regularly. Remember Rosie O'Donnell and the like, and the language becomes a, uh, it sharpens and becomes a Trump mainstay. You know, this is when loser weak, dumb reaches into the hundreds of occurrences. Um, But then, as you know, they get this wonderful twist. As the feed becomes more personal, it also becomes more political. And he begins to target, you know, everything from China, Iran, trade, Kwanzaa to Barack Obama. And what any any and just like he did to his you know other celebrity targets, he launches hundreds of these bombastic attacks. And this is the transformation where he begins to use his Twitter feed to flirt with running for office. What's fascinating, one of the other people that we interviewed, um, and is part of this story of Trump is uh, General Michael Flynn. Um, yes, who you you talked to in the, for the book, right? Yeah, just as he's joining the Trump campaign, this is one of the Michael um, Flynn and Spencer Pratt are in. I think together for the first time, it's really finally. a blockbuster book that way. Yeah, yes, exactly. Um, We've all been longing for that. <laughs> and Flynn's entry into social media, his first post is also in 2011. And literally, it only one person reacts to it. No one um, replies to it. No one retweets it. It's an anodyne post about Middle East news. But then, when he you know leaves DIA, gets sucked into this this uh, world of politics and all the things that have uh, gotten him in trouble since. But also, his online presence changes. And he becomes a font of conspiracy theory. And, um, you know, by contrast with getting like one reaction to posting a news article, when he posts articles on things like Hillary secret child sex ring to hashtag spirit cooking, 
which is the conspiracy theory that there is a secret DC cabal of elites who gather for dinner to drink human blood and semen. I mean, this is kooky stuff. Um, but when yeah. he's posting, wait, this these, is Mike Flynn himself, not Mike Flynn Jr. This is Mike Flynn Sr. Yes, yes, Sr. Um, he posted he posted on Pedogate and the and the spirit drinking or whatever. I didn't quite realize that. Cooking. When he, I, I, but you know, let me, but still... let me before I just don't I don't want to lose it because okay. that message gets him forty eight hundred likes. My question yeah. there, and it, I can imagine that was very intoxicating to General Mike Flynn to get a lot of likes on Twitter. Who doesn't like getting likes on Twitter? Although one thing with digital non-natives, when they get on Twitter and they like put on their dancing shoes and decide the most important thing is to get likes, there's something so undignified and humiliating about it to see them, you know, and, and you know, I will say I was surprised with even seeming heroes or semi-heroes of the resistance like James Comey getting too into Twitter. I mean, those of us who'd been there since it debuted at South by Southwest were kind of like, what? Like, <laughs> come on, you know, the preening and the and the excitement about the number of likes. The other thing is, and we've speculated on this show about when Mike Flynn broke bad and seemingly went to work for the Turks, how that happened to a general, how he got his his head turned by. I mean, you, you don't know, have to working. say you don't have to caveat it with seemingly. Uh, yes. I mean, you've okay. Got the right. Contract of a five hundred thirty uh, uh, thousand dollar deal. This is the great thing of a book. The rend- um, you're talking about the rendition, the the this the rendition contract with Erdogan. All these great, all these fascinating Mike Flynn stories. But if what about? I mean, I, the speculation for him and. Earlier speculation for another internet po- politician, Ron Paul, the speculation about Mike Flynn is that he was getting a lot of bot support and amplification for those, for some of the most, you know, wingnut tweets. And that that became amplifying far right American voices became of interest to certain autocrats that wanted to influence American politics. You know, what do you think of that? I, I was hacked by a Turkish group on Twitter not long ago, and it's a it's a formidable operation um, they have there, the Turkish cyber army. So with Flynn, there's, you know, the fascinating story of, as you describe it, his turn. And um, he we use him as a you know, he's a real world character who illustrates kind of the two sides of the social media revolution he spoke about how as a military officer, the um, rise of the internet was one of the biggest changes of his career. And it changed the way he looked at the world and the value of information. And that in particular, it links to this story of what's known as OSINT, um, open source intelligence. So HUMINT is like spies. SIGINT yep. is you know, code breaking. OSINT is the idea that the information's out there in the open. And he said, you know, when when he starts out in his career, OSINT is the, in his words, like the redheaded stepchild. It's of no value. Uh, no one really mm-hmm. wants it. And then with the rise of the Internet, suddenly it's all out there. His phrasing was, you know, it's there's gold nuggets just waiting to be collected. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, it's part of how he um, helps lead the effort to, you know, run down remnants of Al-Qaeda in Iraq to his um, ideas for remaking not just the defense intelligence agency when he's made the director of it, but the intelligence community writ large. It's it's kind of part of his big vision. But then it 
kind of collapses for a variety of reasons. And his aggressive moves, his management style, et cetera, et cetera, basically is like too much. And he's forced into retirement. And you have this kind of moment, like if that was just the story, Flynn would be portrayed as one of these forward looking kind of prophet of the social media revolution, Mm -hmm. you know, paid the price for seeking change. But of course, his tale doesn't end there. And just as you know, you know, it's everything from he personally doesn't take the dismissal well. He channels his energy into kind of two things. One is making money through a consulting business. And two, he's becomes known as a as a critic of the Obama administration, but not just a typical critic. It's pretty extreme. It's, um, you know, they're betraying the nation and it gives him celebrity and money beyond his, you know, uh, dreams that he had made in the military. But it brings in these new entanglements, whether it's the $530,000 contract with the Turkish government link company that becomes questionable when he fails to register as a foreign lobbying agent to um, $45,000 to speak at a Russian government sponsored gala. And he sits next to Vladimir Putin. But most important, it brings him to the attention of Donald Trump, who had just announced his run for office, but doesn't have advisors and campaign surrogates uh, that he needs. And Flynn is scheduled to meet with Trump for 30 minutes. When their conversation ends 90 minutes later, he comes away with another insight into the future. Um, He says, quote, I knew he was going to be president of the United States. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Flynn then becomes his, you know, kind of, he'd been known as the angriest general and it becomes, you know, one of Trump's angriest campaign surrogates, but also kind of burnishes him with, here's an ex-general speaking on behalf of this real estate tycoon. But it also, of course, just as we were talking about, he dives deeper into the online world that previously he'd been an observer of. And the result is just not pretty. And, you know, we talk about all these conspiracy theories. Um, He Mm -hmm. posts messages of hate. There's retweets of anti-Semitic messages. And what was just so remarkable about it is that um, it works in a certain way for him. Um, He becomes, you know, Trump wins. He becomes a national security advisor, one of the most powerful positions uh, in the U.S. government. It surprises all his old military peers you know, who thought he was done. And instead now he's their boss. But then um, the winning that he had announced, you know, he tweets out, quote, we're going to win and win and win at everything we do. Mm-hmm. And then within a few weeks, he's fired, done in by a series of mistruths. And he admits in a plea bargain with the Department of Justice to making, quote, false, fictitious and fraudulent statements. But what what mm-hmm. was um, remarkable to, to to kind of this discussion that we had is he talked about how there are these gold nuggets out there, but what he had not included is that there is pyrite, that there is fool's gold intentionally mm. planted, cleverly engineered to distract or even destroy us, and so we have this space where the truth is now out there, but it can be buried underneath a sea of lies. And those Mm. lies can be turned into weapons. Wow. And weapons that in some cases seem to have been used on him. I guess I want to wrap with something I hope is a little bit optimistic, which is 
that those listeners, you know, there are li- certainly listeners to Trumpcast who are young enough to think that Twitter and Facebook are idiocy and are thought control. And, you know, I will like I think I've mentioned on the show before, but my 13 year old son absolutely refuses to have a phone on the grounds that it's like emasculating, that it will curb his resourcefulness because he'll rely on GPS. You know, he texty tweety emoji emoji, he says when he sees me with my phone, like he just thinks a smartphone is an emblem of your slavery. And it's sort of a pain when I have to try to, his friends are trying to reach him by text and I, you know, he has to find his way to a payphone. But it does seem like that practice, certain millennials that are going to flip phones are much more interested in security than they are in connection. Do you think that's a legitimate option to sort of to opt out? No. <laughs> Short answer, no. And while it's it's laudable, the reality is that is not the case for the vast majority of us. And I would argue should not be the case. How are you and I talking right now? We're not doing it through a flip phone. How are we sharing our our information with an audience? It's through this yeah, network. You're and, never you know, not on the Internet. Yeah. So what what I would get at is a couple of things um, for why this this isn't an answer. One is that much of the world does not have the luxury to make that kind of choice. Large parts of the world, their experience with the Internet is via social media. So the Internet in the Philippines is really Facebook. And that is only going to continue as the second half of the world comes online. So one, a large number of people don't have a choice. The second is individually, a lot of us don't have a choice because it's addictive. It's psychologically, physically addictive. It's designed to be that way. Even the um, the color red for the Facebook alerts was deliberately chosen that way because it attracts your eye and then it makes you feel good when you make red go away. Any campaign that says, you know, just stop using social media will be as successful as the just say no campaign that is now rightly mm-hmm. mocked on social media. Mm -hmm. So instead, Mm -hmm. what we have to do is understand the new rules of the game. And that's what the book was about, is that uh, to make a a pop culture reference, it's like the movie Rounders um, and the game of poker. (laughs) If you sit down at a poker table and you don't know who the mark is, you're yes, the mark. You're the mark. And, it, and it's not just a generational thing. I wish it was true that, you know, oh, millennials get it and boomers don't. But again, the actual studies show that your age, your education level, your intelligence level, none of them are an inoculator from being taken in online by disinformation, fake news, echo chamber effects. None of those. It's actually understanding how to navigate this world. The threat's not going to go away. It's continuing to hit, you know, everything from the recent Mexican election to the Brazilian election to it's shaping what's happening in the 2018 election. It's also, you know, for all our discussion, it's bipartisan. Both sides now, while some people kind of stumbled into the tactics, you know, maybe Trump kind of was a natural It's now there's a series of new rules of the game that both sides are using. And so it's not going away. And we better understand it. That's the only way to succeed moving forward. Well, I recommend your book on this score, Like War, to listeners. Thank you so much for being here, Peter. I really appreciate it. Thank you. 
And that's it for today's show. What'd you think? Let us know the good and bad by tweeting at RealTrumpCast. And you can also tweet at me. I'm page 88. Any ideas of what you want to talk about next? We're out there on the Twitter machine and we're listening. Again, our Twitter handle is at RealTrumpCast. Follow us. And then you got to do one more thing. You got to sign up for Slate Plus. It's Slate's membership program. And, you know, if you've been taking this show for free, stop being a taker and start being a giver. You'll get Trumpcast ad-free bonus episodes just for members and more. Visit slate.com slash plus. Our show today was produced by AC Valdez and Melissa Kaplan with help from Shirley Chan. Kate James, Asher Perlman, and Steve Waltine performed today's sketch. And I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.